You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey everyone, welcome to Page to Stage, a conversation with theater makers. We're your hosts. That's Brian. And that's Mary. Join us as we focus the spotlight back on the theater maker to uncover their process. We speak with folks in the industry that often aren't heard from, such as stage managers, producers, crew members, marketing professionals, and everything in between. We hope you enjoy this episode. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Jumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Jumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, my name is Johanna. I am a costume and sometimes scenic designer. I do theater, film, dance, and opera. I'm a textile and visual artist. I just started my own podcast, which will be coming out soon, called Dirty Laundry, Unpacking the Costume Closet. I was born and raised in Singapore, and I moved to the States for college, and then I stayed, and I continued to work in the States. And I did grad school in the States as well, and I only just came back to Singapore because of the pandemic. Welcome and good morning. (laughs) Thanks. Good morning. So I just wanted to jump in to see if you could start off by giving us a little bit about how some of the key members of like a wardrobe costume design team work um, and how that they work with you to bring your designs to life. So for me, on most projects, the person that I'm working the most with is probably my director. We read the play and reread the play and we talk a lot, a lot, a lot about the play. Uh, I think that the most interesting thing in the relationships that I have with the people that I work with is the fact that I very often try and reduce the power hierarchy that we have. So with the director, most often I find that the ones that I work the best with are ones that I am straight on collaborators. So we are equals in the relationship. There's no, I'm more important than you in any relationship. Uh, And the same thing goes to the entire costume team. Honestly, the best idea wins. Whoever has the best idea, it doesn't matter if they're the intern, a wardrobe person, someone who's working in the shop 
whoever has the best idea that works for the piece that we're working on is the best idea that we're going to use. So we usually start with a show, we start with the drawings that I've done in a costume shop. We start pulling and looking through stock to see what we have already that exists that we could use for the show. And this isn't just a budget thing, it's actually also often an environmental thing for me as well because using the most of what exists out in the world that you can either beg, borrow, sometimes maybe steal, uh, is the best way to go about actually being the most sustainable about it. And then often what we'll make a list of all the things that we don't have, and then we'll start talking about whether or not those are bought items or if those are things that we're going to build. And then talking with the shop manager about all of this. And then once we get to that point, once we've made those decisions, we can start saying, okay, we need to go buy X, Y, and Z. And then if the shop has a shopper, that person goes out and buys those things. Uh, if we're looking for fabrics, the shopper will go out and swatch those things for us as well. They bring those swatches back in, we look at them, we talk about them in the shop. The drapers will look at it and they'll give feedback if a fabric is a good fabric or not, if, if it's going to drape beautifully if it's going to do something well and then the shopper goes out buys the fabric and then we continue with the working of the draper and working on the shop manager to kind to put together a mock-up and then we go through fittings along the way there are craftspeople, there are dyers there are stitchers there's a whole host of people that go into turning a any kind of garment into a real physicalized garment how involved are you specifically in the process while the garments are being um, are being put together? I'm very involved. So it goes from the mock-up. So they'll make what's called a muslin mock-up, which is a, a version of the costume that's made out in plain fabric. And so we'll have a first fitting with an actor. And essentially what happens is that we fit this so that we are not wasting the good good fashion fabric on a mock-up where there are going to be mistakes made. And we do things like adjusting hemlines, figuring out where the darts are. I'll usually go into a fitting and I'll actually wait for the draper to fit it first because I always find that the draper also knows what that garment is and how it's supposed to fit. And so if I go in and I start giving notes on how a garment's supposed to fit before they're done, then I'm actually probably telling them things they already know and no one likes to be a know-it-all. So I let them do their job because they know what they're doing. And then after that, I come in and I say, oh, actually, I think this dart, in my mind, I think that this may be for this period, this dart should be this X, Y, and Z dart. Or uh, perhaps I would like to have this fit differently in this other way. And even during the conversation, in the conversation in the fitting room, when the draper is doing all of these things, oftentimes they might also ask me questions of like, so I put this here. Do you like that? We can always move it this way. You know, X, Y, like we could always change this here. How long do you want it? So there's, there's conversation that goes back and forth in that all of it as well. If we kind of jump back to when you first get brought onto a project, how do you get brought onto a project? How do you find work as a costume designer, whether that be through directors, you know, theaters you've worked with? And then what are those initial discussions like to get you onto the project? Yeah, um, it's all word of mouth, which is most theater, which is all word of mouth. And actually the problem with word of mouth hiring is as we're finding, as we try and make theater more anti-racist, is that it depends on your reputation, which involves bias. And sometimes we don't know what that means. So word of mouth hiring can be incredibly problematic or it can be really great if you're really good at networking. I have gotten jobs based on people, mostly through people I know, through people I've worked with. 
with who have enjoyed working with me and told someone else that they have to work with me. It can be great when you have uh, really good networks of people, and it can be terrible if you refuse to buy into certain institutions. Like, for example, one really big one I think is going to if you can't afford to do an internship at Williamstown Theater Festival, for example, that's like a really big network of people. I've been very fortunate because a lot of my friends have gone to Williamstown and have therefore recommended me for work because I know all of them. But it can be also really terrible if you don't have that network of people or can't afford to go to a school that already has a built-in network. So mostly through friends is how I get my jobs. And usually when they call me up, sometimes I do have to interview for work. And I have been on more and more processes where I've had to interview for jobs. The theater will give a director maybe a list of people that they want them to talk to. Sometimes it's because that's a new director to that theater and I've worked with that theater before. In which case the director calls you up, you have a conversation, you talk about your work styles, you talk about the play a little bit, and hopefully you've made enough of a good impression that they'll hire you. In those situations, are you, are you showing them like your portfolio or are they getting a sense of like your your general style and your skill set through through like actual images or videos? Yeah, so hopefully by the point that we're having this conversation, they've already seen my website. So that website is is open for anyone to look at. Any anybody in the world can just go on and look and see all the stuff that I've done before in the past. And so at that point are they asking you questions? in the interview, such as how do you see the play? What would you do with the costumes? What would your vision be? Or do they kind of tell you, this is what I'm thinking. How would you come to what I'm thinking? It's a little mixture of both because on one hand, I also don't believe in performing free labor for people who uh, haven't hired me yet. So um, (laughs) that's a great mindset to have. (laughs) Yeah. So hopefully by that point, Uh, I've read the script and have a sense of what the show is so we can talk about what the show is, but they're not really asking for my input on the show because I also feel like part of my input on the show depends on my personal point of view after I finish reading it or after my personal point of view of how I view the world. And that's something that is specific to me. So if I tell a director how I feel before they've had a chance to tell me how they feel, we might not actually have the same point of view. Um, It's helpful to hear what their vision is of the world. And so then I can see how my point of view of the world fits in with that vision. It doesn't always line up. And so then you kind of- Yeah, I was going to ask you, so what happens if if it doesn't line up or if it doesn't quite at first glance, like fit like a nice puzzle piece, like how do you go about kind of- retracing your steps or do you even retrace your steps yeah it depends on whether or not i'm hired for the show if i am hired for the show then yeah i tell them my point of view and we have i think very open discussions about what's important to us and nine times out of ten they do line up somewhat even if they don't line up completely they'll line up a little bit and then you can find the point of view for me is really my way into the show so it can even if it's not what the vision of the whole show is. It's how I access the show and how I access the characters of the show. So that's usually helpful for me to remember as well. So if we think back to your prep work for starting out on a show, um, I mean, there's tons of different ways that you can go about a process depending on if it's a new work or a play or musical that's already been uh if you're reviving a play or musical how does that affect your process and what are some of the ways that you do your research to start designing 
So I often try to not look at any other versions of the show that exists, right? Because there's no way you can look at someone else's version of the show and divorce yourself from their point of view. So if you end up, especially for people that end up copying designs or looking or referencing a previous production heavily, the problem I find is that you might not know what that person's point of view on the show was. And so you're just looking at things, you're looking at the finished product and you're not really understanding their process. When I work on a show, usually what I start with is a point of view. So I actually write out a point of view. And some of those are actually available on my website because I find that reading that helps you to understand the design of the show that I've done. And so it's always helpful to actually have, it seems counterproductive, which is, I know, strange for a designer to be writing about the show first. But it's actually a way that I have found to personally access everything that I'm thinking about the show. It usually themes will come up or things that are really important to me will probably come up and how I access all of the emotions in the show will come up in that writing. Uh, then I start doing research. The research usually starts with practical historical research. So I go with like if a show set in the 1950s, I start looking up what is what are the undergarments in the 1950s? How did people dress? What were their behaviors? What were their attitudes? What was some of the music that they would have been listening to? Um, what's the art of the period? So it's kind of like a deep dramaturgical dive into the visual imagery of that 1950s period. And then I go on and layer another layer on top of it, right? Are there uh, contemporary figures that remind me of this person? Or are there emotional pictures that have nothing to do with practical design, but are there just like emotions that I feel that can be represented in an image. And also often those images don't always exist exactly the way you want them to exist, right? So it might require altering, photoshopping, collaging something, or even me just drawing out kind of my emotions of the play uh, and then collaging those together. So I kind of create a mood board with some of those things and then talking to a director, seeing how they react to some of the emotions. Cause they'll often pick out from all of my research. They'll be like, this one makes the most sense to me or this, I love the X, Y, Z in this. And then we'll talk about what those specific things are and then keep moving forward from there. Do you know, and this might change from show to show to show that you work on, but do you know at what point you are brought into or jump into the, into the show? Like, would you say, obviously, it's obviously pre-production, but are you closer to, like, the very beginning, early, when things or pieces are just starting to be discussed? Or are you maybe closer to when casting maybe starts? Like, or is it kind of on a sliding scale? It's on a sliding scale because, like you said, it really depends from show to show. It also depends on how closely I've worked with that director before. Because I think if I've worked with that director before, they know that I like to be in on the process as early as possible. And so then they'll try and get me on earlier, sooner rather than later. Um, I also tend to find that design teams aren't always hired evenly. So the costume and set, the set designers usually hired first and then the costume designer and then the lighting and sound designers. And sometimes the lighting and sound designers could be hired as late as casting or even later, which is always really problematic because you want to make sure that your whole design team is actually together and on the same page and telling the same story right from the get-go. Theaters, as they've started to cut budgets, they've also started to reduce the fact that it used to be that people would fly designers in to have a first design meeting together. That's actually never happened to me because I came in too late in this game in this day and age. But 
the fact that they used to do that and don't do that anymore because of Zoom, they just assume that everyone can just talk to each other as easily online as they would in person. And that's actually really hard because you really kind of want to be in the same room with everyone, especially for that first day. And the ones, the design meetings and the shows that I've been in where that has happened, the collaboration is always so much more fruitful because, like I said, the best idea wins, right? The costume idea could come from a lighting designer, could come from the set designer. It doesn't really matter. But when everyone's talking about the show, no one's actually talking about the specifics of each person's design just yet in the beginning. And so we're all just talking about the idea of the show and what that show means to us. That's fascinating. It's more of like you're focusing on like the bigger picture than like the details that obviously make up the bigger picture. Absolutely. And then there are also companies. So I'm also a resident designer for What Would the Neighbors Say, which they do a lot of biodrama. And we're actually workshopping several pieces right now, but I'm there in the workshop. So we're working on the script of the play. There's not a director attached to this show at all. You know, we're actually workshopping. So all the designers, all the resident designers are actually a part of this workshop to do dramaturgical research on the world and the visual ideas of the world and talking about the questions that we want to explore or answer from this play. And we can do that because we're resident designers and we're part of a bigger company. That doesn't always happen. Uh, there's another show that I'm working on here in Singapore where I've been a part of callbacks and auditions. And it's called Where Are You? It's a play about grief, uh, directed by Simian Ying, who's actually also New York City-based. And she's really lovely to work with because the whole piece is devised. And so we were an ensemble of of, uh, director, dramaturgs, designers who are then auditioning an ensemble and picking an ensemble together that was going to create the vision that we have already started. So it really depends on the show. In the past, when I've worked in Singapore, I was mostly doing wardrobe and assisting, um, and only really like on summers when I came home during college. This is the first time I've been home long enough to really do a theater piece in Singapore. This is the longest I've been home in 11 years. Um, That's been a little crazy for me. But yeah, so we're hoping theaters will open up by next year. The hope is to do the show in February. I don't know if that's going to happen. Well, I am so interested just in your point of view as somebody from Singapore who went to school in America and is now working in America and going back to Singapore and back and forth and and whatnot. What was your background in theater in Singapore? And did you have like, what, what made you come to America to to pursue costumes? As I was looking at universities, I kind of, there's not anywhere to study costume design in Singapore. It doesn't exist. Singapore itself probably has maybe five costume designers. Uh, They're mostly either self-taught or they come from a fashion design background. Um, And so because it doesn't exist, I started looking immediately outside of Singapore where I could do this. And I I looked at Australia and New Zealand and Hong Kong at first because those are closest. Um, The Hong Kong Academy of Performing Arts has a great program. I had no desire to live in Hong Kong because my mastership of Mandarin and Cantonese are so terrible. And they mostly speak Cantonese and I can only understand Cantonese. I can't speak it. So I knew I didn't really want to live in Hong Kong. Uh, New Zealand was fairly attractive because my aunt lives there and I could have maybe been near her. But the programs that did it were also not near where she lived. And so that didn't really make sense to me. 
And immediately, of course, I started looking at America and the UK because that's where all the bigger programs are. Uh, the UK doesn't really have very good scholarships and I knew I couldn't afford to go to school. So I ended up going to Ithaca College, which gave me a full tuition scholarship. And I also had a local scholarship in Singapore from the National Arts Council here, which actually paid for all of my board and food and paid for me to fly back and forth from the United States. My undergrad was in theatrical production arts, so just kind of like general technical theater and design and with a focus in design. And my grad degree is design for stage and film. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I know you have a few like film credits. You said that you were, you filmed something in Singapore last year, even is film something that interests you at all? Like, do you, do you see yourself going down that route? I have only done two films. I actually, when I went to grad school, I was kind of like, I'm never doing film. I don't want to do this. I'm not interested in it. It's a terrible medium. And it's only because I had some really bad experiences with film in undergrad because our, my undergrad also had a film school that kind of, caused me to write off a lot of film and I actually didn't want to do it. And then I met a Singaporean film director in grad school and her name is Cheryl and she's amazing. And we started talking about the kinds of stories we wanted to tell and why we wanted to tell them. And that's when my entire perspective on it really started to shift. And this only, this happened last year. So in my last year of grad school, I was like, oh, maybe film isn't so bad after all. I should take advantage of some of these things that are being offered to me right now. Um, And so in the last year of grad school, I kind of realized that the big thing for me and why I do what I do was that there were important stories that I wanted to tell. And there were stories that I wanted to amplify. And that at the end of the day, it really didn't matter what the medium is. You know, I could be writing a book. I could be doing a podcast. I could be drawing pictures, right? It doesn't matter how I tell the story as long as I'm telling stories that are important to me. And so film in that sense became so much more enjoyable because I realized I was telling a story that felt so important to me because that film that we worked on that was here in Singapore was about, it was a growing up story of a 12 year old girl in Singapore who felt incredibly out of place. And I knew I intimately have that lived experience, right? I knew exactly how she felt. You know, the story was set partly in an all girls school. Like that's something that I did for 10 years. Like I just like even things like how do you dress uniforms? You know, people think that uniforms are all the same, but when you go into the details of like how each person wears a uniform and and the little things they do to add the touches that personalize them within that context, you know, that's something that I, was so familiar with. We adjusted so many of our uniforms in school. We shortened our skirts. Guys would taper their pants. We, I lived in a time where things were not wasted. So I'm sure you guys know this too. Like the cool thing was to have your waist down low by your hips. And so in our blouses and our shirts, we would actually run a cord in the bottom of the shirts to tie it so that it looked like they were tucked into our skirts, but they were really just like lifted up just a little bit so that it looked like our skirts were on our hips. Right. There's so many little tricks and things that we were doing to kind of like make those clothes feel like us instead of something that was imposed on us by our institutions. Once I started doing that, I realized, oh, this is so much more fun. I'm having way I I also realized that there's something about the film schedule that I'm really built for because it requires so much active thinking 
like on your feet, like just go do it. And that's something I'm really good at. And I was like, oh crap, I've been missing out on this entire thing because I just wrote it off, but I'm actually really good at it. And maybe I should do more of it. Uh, so I did a second film right before, that was the last thing I worked on before we everything got shut down this year was I worked on another short film. I actually, since you brought it up earlier, I wanted to talk about your residency because I'm fascinated by, I've always been fascinated by the idea of an arts residency, but specifically with design residency, I'm so curious as to how you got involved with 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 this theater company and because i'm also obsessed with their mission i was reading a little bit about the website and i just think it's so fascinating um but uh, yeah i'm curious as to your experience how you got involved what you like about residencies maybe what you're not so fond about residencies if you have that wwtns so there are four artistic directors and one of the artistic directors used to go to ithaca college and he transferred out in after his sophomore year so at the time he was dating someone in my class which is two years ahead of him and i'm dating someone that was in his class two years below us and so we kind of, we had, we were friends already in undergrad. And then I moved to New York City and he transferred out of Ithaca College to go to NYU and join the Experimental Theater Wing. And so when my friend was producing one of his shows, they needed a costume designer and they called me. And back then, this was even before WWTNS was a thing. So some of them are still in college. Uh, the show was called Dogs of DC and it was at that terrible little theater called Manhattan Rep in that crazy building yeah Yeah. in that crazy building time scare is that what it's called yeah Um, (laughs) (laughs) oh dear god yes and so i did their show there and then kind of forgot about it and then they slowly as the as a few one or two years went by they all graduated and then they formed this company and as they needed a costume designer because i'd already worked with them i continued to work with them on and off on shows i really enjoyed what they were doing and so this year when they asked me would you be a resident designer with us the answer was yes uh it's not really an arts residency i would say it's more like i am the go-to set and costume designer for them so if they have a project I basically get right of first refusal on all of their projects now, which is super cool, actually. And it's really fun because I enjoy working with all four of them. They're amazing humans and they're really committed to their their mission. They're super committed to it. And they do this. We did this crazy thing in the workshop where actually it's not so crazy because it's what they do with all of their shows. But I had just never been a part of that process in the workshop before. So to actually see them go through it, um, which was to ask what the central question we wanted to ask of the play is. And so they have this thing where they everybody comes up with five questions they want to ask of the play. And you slowly essentially upvote all the questions until you arrive at one central question that you think answers well hopefully the answer will be fulfilling and helpful to understanding what the play is about and what we want to do with it so it's sort of like a point of view but instead of being a specific point of view that's coming from eight people trying to craft one point of view you're basically asking what the question is and hopefully our point of view will answer that question if that makes any sense yeah yeah that makes sense it sounds like a fun game (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it is. It's really fun. And I didn't realize that's what they do for all of their shows. And I'd never been a part of that process before. And they teach it at Queens College. So all four of them teach a course together on documentary theater uh, at Queens College. And it's really fascinating. 
documentary theater that sounds really cool mm-hmm. oh yeah, yeah i took a whole class on it in grad school brian I, i'll I'll, really? I'll, send, I'll send you my book yeah oh um i i just want to go back to before because I, I know we want to talk a little bit about scenic design um but before we get there I'm just wondering through opening, what is that process like uh, leading up to opening and what are your responsibilities um, after opening and once a show closes? Oh, that depends on the level of theater that you're working at. And part of the existential problem that I have with costume design is that it's feminized labor. So feminized labor refers to the fact that it's often viewed as women's work. And so costume designers, even though... Recently, we've reached pay parity in the union uh, for many things, Broadway and off-Broadway. The problem with costume design is that we often don't get the same kind of resources and support that other designers get. So a set designer and a line designer and sound designer, usually when they walk in, they can assume that there will be a master electrician or a technical director or a master carpenter or a sound engineer. There will be someone there who is hired there to work with them on these things, and they don't actually have to carry the weight of a lot of the technical work. As a costume designer, we often handle our own budgets, we do our own shopping, we do a lot of, um, sometimes we do alterations, we often almost always will end up picking up a craft in the show because it's tactile and it's something that, you know, we're kind of trained to do. Uh, The problem with this is that we often just don't get the support of a shop manager or a shop or um, even enough assistance in the show. And I think people don't realize that costume designers actually end up taking on, because of this, costume designers actually take on less work. If you look at Portia McGovern's study in HowlRound, which is who designs and directs in Lord Theatres, you'll actually see that the average number of shows that costume designers do is actually less than, than set and lighting and sound designers. And that's precisely that, because we end up doing more work on each show than other designers do. So we're less able to take on as many shows as they do. So throughout the process, we end up touching a lot of things. I will probably end up, I also probably end up doing the budget, the receipts, all of that is often my work. Hopefully once a show is frozen, I don't have to come in. (laughs) It's the goal. Are your hands like wiped clean at that point? Or do you have to come back to close the show? Once again, it depends on uh, what level of theater you're working at. Uh, some places will require the costume designers to come in and strike the show themselves, which other designers don't have to, I would like to point out again. Um, but the costume designers, because we have usually intimate knowledge of where everything comes from, uh, will end up being the person that has to strike their own show. So it, once again, it depends on where what level you're working at. If you're working at Lord Theatres, usually there's a shop who'll do that for you, so you won't have to come back at all. Um, after opening, though, Unless there are understudies and you haven't done that yet, that's some, maybe something that you'll have to do after opening, depending once again on where you are. You may not always have like a wardrobe supervisor that comes with the building. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Not always. <laughs> that is fat. So before I came to New York, I was working at a regional theater and they did have a wardrobe supervisor. And so I kind of yeah. just thought that most places did have that. Or even if it was probably like wardrobe slash insert other title supervisor. But wow, mm-hmm. that's it. De- so de- once again, it depends on the level of theater that you're working at. So what's fascinating to me is that even at smaller shows in New York City, like the set lighting and sound designers will often have more support than costume designers. So any kind of downtown show, half of off Broadway, especially if they're uh, 
a commercial off-Broadway show and not not from one of the non-for-profits. I, this changes very differently once you go up to Broadway and like Lort theaters. But if you're working in the downtown scene or any kind of small commercial show in New York City, that's likely the case. Hmm. Is there is, is there any reason why lighting, not costumes, why sounds, not scenic, or is there any men's work? <laughs> okay. Yeah. That was kind of that was my thought, but I wasn't I wasn't entirely sure. Yeah. So, and the thing to remember with feminized labor is that it applies to all genders, right? So the idea of like the fact that labor is feminized doesn't mean that it's just the female costume designers that get this. So if you're a male costume designer working, you face the same kind of discrimination in this way because it the whole field is being seen as feminized labor. And it part of it has to do with the way we view how cheaply garments are made now in developing countries and the way that kind of labor has just been seen over the last hundred years, especially once we hit the industrial revolution, um, it sewing and making clothes did used to be actually made by men, right? Tailors traditionally are male. And so it's really what happened in the industrial revolution when they realized that they needed a lot of people to then be able to run things through a sewing machine that it shifted, garment work actually shifted to be mostly female. Are you guys part of a union costume designers? Have you ever heard of people having discussions about this kind of stuff within their own network and, you know, trying to make change in these sort of disparities that you see? Theatrical and film costume designers not in L.A. are part of USA IOTC Local 829. And so that's the one I'm a part of. Um, there are several other unions. I think the biggest way this disparity is actually also seen is on Broadway, where all the stagehands are part of Local 1 and wardrobe is part of Local 764. And in that, the wages are set differently. And if they need to go into overtime, they'll make the dressers go into overtime first before they'll make Local 1 go into overtime because it's cheaper to make 764 go into overtime. So the other part of the problem is that costume shops in New York City are mostly, commercial costume shops in New York City are not unionized. So the only two costume shops in New York City that are union are the Met Opera Costume Shop and New York City Ballet. And so part of it has to do with the fact that in New York City's history, um, costume shops used to be part of the garment district worker union. So anyone who touches sewing machine in New York City had to be a part of this union. So not even not everyone in the shop was part of this union, just only the people who were um, stitchers running things through sewing machines. Uh, eventually, they deunionized from all of that, and costume shops in general have never reunionized. So there's some disparity in that. So for example, when I first started out, the starting wage for a stitcher when I applied for a job in a Broadway costume shop was $11 an hour, right? For a Broadway costume shop, $11 an hour. Your equivalent position starting even off Broadway as a carpenter is $20 an hour, just to give you some of the hard facts. So there are people doing some of this work. Um, the first one being costume professionals for wage equity. They're on Facebook and they're on. They have their own website. Um, they're a great group that's trying to raise awareness for it. For this, uh, this is actually going to be the first topic of my podcast because it's something I'm clearly very passionate about. Switching gears, if that's okay, really quickly before we get to the lightning round, I just wanted to ask uh, a little bit about scenic design. How you you know, got into scenic design. Yeah, so I didn't start doing scenic design. Um, aside from like that little bit in Odyssey of the Mind, which I wouldn't really call scenic design, I really started doing scenic design in undergrad when we had to do all of the designs together in class. So I had to take it in class, both like 
uh, set design one and set design two. And I really enjoyed those classes with my professor. Um, I felt like I learned a lot. And so I started doing it outside of school, mostly as a favor to certain directors that who I enjoyed working with. I have been asked why I don't do more set design, particularly because it is more male dominated and people have been, well, you would get so much more work if you just told everyone you're a set designer. I find set design more taxing because I feel like I enjoy people and my interactions with people more. And so the idea of creating sets and worlds often is more taxing for me. And it definitely is something that I only do with directors that I really, really like. So Hmm. you ever done scenic and costumes at the same time? I do. And once again, with directors that I really enjoy. So actually for the show in February, I'm doing both. Um, It also depends on the show. How does that work? Like in your brain, like how are you, because you're designing, like it's not just like it's, I don't know. It just feels feels like it's so much. I don't know if you're like this, but for me, I'd be like, oh, this is great. I get to control pretty much all the colors on stage except for the lighting. This is true. (laughs) yeah so actually yeah so being a set and costume designer usually they just say you're doing production design um is more common in the uk that's actually their system in the uk where there's this the the designer for the show usually does sets and costumes or sometimes sets and lights and then they'll have a costume supervisor who actually deals with the more nitty-gritty of everything the reason that i found with people who do both actually most often are more set designers and then have a costume supervisor or uh, assistant who does a lot more of the costume work so at the end of the day there's usually actually two people working on this Um, most people can't do all of that work on their own. So I also only do both. That's why I only do both the people that I really like, because I feel like they would understand that my attention's being split or that they understand that there's a lot of work to do and that I'm doing for them. It is really fun to be able to control everything because it's, it's kind of liberating. You don't have to ask anyone what color the floor is or what color the walls are, and you can just go for it. And creating a world is almost easier because in some sense you're you're envisioning already you can't design costumes without first understanding where people are. So in graduate school, for example, actually, even though the focus of my grad studies was in costume design, all of us in class, we would have to essentially have an idea of what the set is. And you're already going through the motions of understanding what the world is and designing the world that they live in in order to understand what the costumes are because you can't do one without the other. Right. And are those like, are you, I know you said you're more likely to take them, these double projects on with directors you like, but would they be smaller shows perhaps? So that like the number of costumes and like, okay. Yeah. That too. (laughs) Makes sense. I mean, it's either that or they have to have a budget to have an assistant, like a good, like a full-time assistant. Because the other thing I refuse to do is to pay my assistant $400 for 12 weeks of work, right? That's not equitable and that's not helpful. And so... I even when I work as an assistant, I'm very fortunate because I've been able to negotiate better rates for myself. Um, But that's not always the case. And so I've also actually a really fun thing I've done is to assist both sets and costumes. So I've assisted two different designers on the same show doing both sets and costumes because that way they were able to pull their assistant money together and have pay me through all of tech. And so I could be there for both of them which is actually really exciting. That's smart. (laughs) Those two designers are also really good friends. And that's the other reason why I knew that was going to work out well. (laughs) Smart. 
I have one more question before we get to the lightning round. Um, so taking COVID out of the equation, because we know that that messed everything up. But what do you see? Your, where do you see yourself in the trajectory of your career? You know, what are some goals and next steps that you're hoping to have come to fruition? Oh, COVID really threw a wrench in that one, didn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the sad part that I'm still grieving and will probably continue to grieve is that I was supposed to do seven shows this summer. I was supposed to do seven shows this summer and of those seven shows, four directors are women of color, two directors are men of color, and only one show was directed by a white person. And she's a woman and she's lovely to work with. And so that was actually like probably the most exciting thing that I was looking forward to in a long time. I also finished grad- graduate school in May. So this is like I had planned and conceived this entire summer over the um over what are the months no, like November, December, January. Like that was the season I kind of had worked really hard for and I fought for some of those shows and I got them. So I was actually really excited for that. Um that would have been a great summer would have. Hopefully most of those shows are postponed for next summer so hopefully they actually happen we Mm. that's yet to be seen fingers crossed fingers crossed um and i was also supposed to work on a theater works national tour of i don't think i can say what show it is um it's okay it's a book it's a children's book (laughs) this is true um i'm working on a, a children's another children's tour for for theater works um Directed by directed and written by Miranda Heyman, who's another fantastic woman to work with. Um, so that all would have been really exciting. The goal, I guess. Oh, I don't even know anymore. I was hoping to start doing some TV work just for the money, because let's be real, it's good money. It's hard to remember what I wanted before all of this happened. Well, great. All right, um, Brian, you want to start with the lightning round then? So we usually just ask these like short questions. We don't necessarily, we're not going to like respond or have a conversation about, but they're just kind of like fun little like zingers, if you will. So I'm going to ask my favorite question on this list. And I'm very curious as to what your answer is going to be based on our conversation already. But it is, what is one thing in the theater industry that confuses you? Why don't we pay people more? Between musicals, plays, dance, opera, all the things you've done, film, what's your favorite to design? musicals what are three adjectives that describe your favorite working environment collaborative decolonized equal your top two tools that you always have on you when you're designing or during tech safety pins and scissors is there something in your process that you find unique to you Writing out a point of view. What is one hobby that you have outside of theater? So many, actually, now with COVID. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's the um, truth. Yeah. Um, I picked up weaving. Uh, I do archery. I love ceramics. Um, I've been, I started beading. I also bead and embroider, which is hard because I feel like they're related, but not really because I don't do them for money. What is one job in the theater industry that you would trade jobs with for one week? A director? I, I'd like to try it out. Favorite or go-to pre-show or after-show meal? Popeyes. <laughs> and then our last question, which is, what's the last great piece of theater that you saw? Slave play. That was a good one. Mary, did you end up seeing that? I know I didn't. And I hate no. myself oh. for it. I actually, you know, I 
I wish I could see that again, you know, yeah. like yeah. you see it. I don't want to say anything and spoil anything for anybody who hasn't yeah. seen it, but seeing that play the first time without knowing anything really about it because of the marketing and everything, it's so purposeful, but your mind is blown so much by the end a million times that you just want to go back to the beginning again and just click restart if your body can handle it because it's it's really crazy to was, go back yeah. and like yeah i just i want to know i want to like meet somebody that has had the opportunity to see it more than once and what that second time around was like it was actually really hard for me because so i've worked with that creative team um twice uh, Robert O'Hara, uh, Clint Ramos, and Didi Aite are all amazing and lovely. And I sh was a shopper on Booty Candy, and then I assisted them on their Steppenwolf production of Marie Antoinette. Uh, I assisted Didi on the Steppenwolf production of Marie Antoinette, and I worked with them on Bella I at Playwrights Horizons as well. So it's a it's a wonderful creative team that they have there. I felt bad because I had to go say hi to people after the show. Like I had to go say hi to them at the show, and all I wanted to do was run away, and I did actually after that runaway and kind of write I just started writing I needed to be in a safe space I needed to be in a quiet space where I could just write out my feelings from the show I did wish they took so much care with the performers in that show I wish they took a little more care of the audience in terms of aftercare it's something that we mm. also don't talk a lot about in the United yeah. States I feel like um, but this idea of decompression and aftercare for the audience and that is a show that could have would have benefited greatly from that, I think. Especially with the final scene. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, we'll leave it there, everybody. I know. I maybe uh, I'll read it because I know you can. You can get the. I wonder. The I wonder now. what that experience is like. Honestly, maybe yeah. maybe, I'll, maybe I'll do that. <laughs> so I yeah. know what happens. So, how can our listeners keep in touch with you on social media and follow you and all that good stuff? Ah, okay. Um, at Japan Design is my Instagram. Um, or if you want to see stuff on the podcast, uh, at dirty laundry dot the podcast, I also sell stuff. If you want to buy anything that I make now because of COVID, um, which is hanabi.studio and I sell weavings and jewelry and all that other fun stuff that I make. Amazing. I'm going to put, as always, I'll put everything that we've talked about, um, in the description notes below. So you can click that right through. Thank, Thank you, you so much. I'm looking so forward to listening to your podcast because I, I was on the website earlier today reading the about and it, it sounds really great. Can't wait to <laughs> listen. I'm excited. It should be interesting. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Page to Stage. To keep up with us, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Page to Stage Podcast. And if you're enjoying these conversations, we would really appreciate it if you could take a couple minutes to rate and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast. Until next time. That's Brian. That's Mary. We'll see you later. Bye. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now 
and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.